Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. This is Joe Nessel speaking on and for Radical Philosophy at 3CR. I can remember speaking early when I first arrived uh, to Melbourne at a program called The Women's Shed, and that was my introduction to the wonders of community radio, which are more important in the world now than ever. And you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, and I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Just a reminder, a couple of reminders. One, that next week we're having our Radiothon program, but it's not too early to get online or pick up the phone and to donate to Radical Philosophy, and all your donations will be directly supporting women in philosophy having a stronger voice in the media. And you can access all the previous interviews on the Facebook site. All you need to do is to go to the 3CR Radical Philosophy website and there's a link there for the Facebook site And you don't have to be on Facebook or a member of Facebook yourself. You can just get onto the site and view and listen to all the previous interviews. And I'm speaking to Dr. Emma Larking from the ANU. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Beth. How would you define natural or human rights? I'd define human rights as rights that we claim should be recognised or accorded simply on the basis that a person's a human being. So they're rights that are considered an important mechanism for honouring the innate dignity of all human beings um, and it's thought that they should apply regardless of personal characteristics or social standing. Historically, it was common to argue that these rights existed independently of whether or not they were enshrined in positive law. So they were said to be mandated by what was known as the natural law, and that's the source of the expression natural rights. So what was it that inspired you to study human rights? Oh, look, initially it was just being struck by the contrast between Australia's claim to be a state that recognises and upholds human rights, and that's even uh, despite the fact we don't have a National Bill of Rights, we do still claim to be a rights-recognising state, and our treatment of refugees and asylum seekers. So it's a pretty awful situation, isn't it, their treatment? Yes, yes. Yep. Now, there, there must be... Yes, I think it's a dire situation. I think it's mm. really sad that we're going backwards from a position where we got to a, a really terrible point under the Howard government. We made some improvements and now we're, we're back in the position we're in. 
So there must be a difference between legal human rights and ethical human rights, given that in Australia there there are children locked up in detention centres. No one would be able to argue that this was in any way ethical, would they? No, look, I think it would be a very... I I mean, there are people who might make that argument. I think it's a very difficult argument to make. But as I was saying earlier, it it did use, in in relation to the difference between legal human rights and ethical human rights, it used to be argued that individuals had human rights regardless of whether or not those rights were enshrined in law. So the primary force of human rights was considered to be moral or ethical. I've argued, I've um, recently published a book called Refugees and the Myth of Human Rights, and I argue there that it's dangerous to think of human rights primarily as moral or ethical obligations because this has the effect of privatising rights. So it treats their recognition as a matter of individual conscience rather than public political commitment. And I think that human rights really can only protect individuals in a meaningful way if they're recognised and upheld by particular political communities that protect the rights of their members and all of those who come into contact with their laws. So what is the relevance of free and equal? So originally human rights were said to provide recognition not only of man's innate dignity but also of his innate freedom and equality. And this was a claim made in the context of societies in which monarchs inherited power and the social class into which you were born dictated whether you were entitled to contribute to government. So it was quite a revolutionary claim. People like John Locke in his Second Treaties of Government challenged the idea that individuals could be born to rule. And while Locke and others like him actually argued that women, along with men who, didn't, uh, who weren't landowners, could still be excluded from government... The language of freedom and equality proved to be very powerful and it was used by the disenfranchised to claim that they were also entitled to contribute to government and and that government should be equally accountable to them. Could you explain about the proclamation of rights of man? Sure. So the rights of man were originally proclaimed in the 18th century in the American Declaration of Independence and the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. Both of those instruments proclaimed that men are born free and equal in rights and that the role of government is to secure the rights with which all men are born. So like Locke's Second Treaties of Government, these were really revolutionary proclamations that tied the legitimacy of government to its ability to secure the equal rights of its citizens to whom it then continued to be accountable. So how does Hannah Arendt distinguish between those rights that, although proclaimed as human rights, are actually the varying rights of citizens in different countries and the right to political membership and legal personality, or in other words, the right to have rights? So Arendt argues that what we'd ordinarily call human rights should actually be thought of as citizens' rights because they're only reliably recognised and upheld in the context of political communities that actually constitute their members as equals and that are committed to recognising the rights of their members. 
On the other hand, we need to secure the right to political membership and legal personality, or what she calls the right to have rights, as a genuinely universal human right. That's because when people are deprived of this right, they're unable to access any of the other rights accorded by particular communities, and they're denied at the same time the ability to participate in the political project of articulating and realising rights as an equal among equals, and so as a subject of justice, which when we think about how refugees are treated, you know, they're objects of compassion if they're very lucky, but more often objects of hostility, but we never think of them as, as subjects of justice, and that's a significant thing for Arendt. How do you think the right to have rights could or should be realised? Oh, look, this is a really challenging question. One way of realising the right to have rights would be to recognise and uphold the right to international freedom of movement for all individuals. And I think there are strong moral reasons for supporting such a right, but enforcing it would basically require a global state with highly developed institutions and you know, a global police force. And such a state would have worrying implications for political diversity, which I think can also be considered a value for people everywhere. Consistent with Arendt's own thoughts, so Arendt was actually very concerned about ensuring that we preserve and actually foster political plurality. So I'd like to see, consistent with that, the right to have rights recognised in a way that, that does somehow hold on to that plurality. So to avoid the kind of institution building that would lead to a global state. And Arendt herself didn't provide much guidance on how, how we could sort of establish a right to have rights without going in the direction of a, a global state. But I'd argue that what we need to do is develop a multi-layered response. So the first part of this response would be a global agreement that allows members of groups that are the targets of genocidal attacks to move freely across borders. And these people would have legal status wherever they go and would be entitled to citizenship in some state other than their own. And that would be an agreement that, would, that all states would have to, have to sign on to. The second part of the response would involve all wealthy liberal democracies entering a resettlement treaty to ensure that people can be resettled who are unable to live what the philosopher Michael Dummett describes as a decent life in their home country. So Dummett defines a decent life as one that's free from the threat of an unnatural death, whether from violence or starvation, and that also allows a basic dignity. And the integrity of the law in liberal democracies depends on these countries entering an agreement along these lines because the legitimacy of the law is based on its impartiality and its capacity to secure individual freedom and equality. Liberal democratic legal systems can't simply be quarantined from global institutions and from the claims of asylum seekers who come into contact with them, much as you know, we've been trying to quarantine ourselves. So they have to be loyal to their own universalist commitments. And while it's true that a resettlement treaty between liberal democracies could create quite major issues in terms of the capacity of state parties to actually absorb large numbers of people in need, recognition that liberal democracies have obligations of this scope would encourage them to change their orientation to overseas aid. So currently these countries benefit disproportionately from global trade and other regimes, 
such as intellectual property rules, that place significant burdens on the developing world. Recognising that liberal democracies have justice obligations to redistribute wealth and other benefits globally would mean that some of the, or many of the root causes that currently force people to leave their homes and to seek refuge in the wealthy liberal democratic world would actually be redressed. So that issue of having to absorb huge numbers of, of people would be ameliorated to some degree. Just recently, uh, the question of citizenship has been in the media with Australia saying that they're considering revoking somebody's citizenship that they've received recently. Yeah. You know, if there's... uh, There seem to be terrorists or other sort of criminal activity. I mean, it it actually quite shook me up when when they stated... Stated, you know, what, what they were considering doing. Yes, yeah, look, I think it's such a, a worrying course to go down and it's something that we've seen before. I'm constantly being struck by the sort of worrying parallels with what happened in Europe in the lead-up to the Second World War, but in The Origins of Totalitarianism, Hannah Arendt talks about how countries that were ostensibly democratic countries basically followed the path of the of the totalitarian regimes by introducing denaturalisation legislation to allow them to actually deprive naturalised citizens of their citizenship. So the groups that were being stigmatised by the Nazis became the groups that these countries also stigmatised and refused to protect. And I just think it's such a dangerous path to go down. It's, it's suggesting that, you know, we, the group of people who are Australians, make a decision about our membership, but we can exclude certain people from membership. And who those people are becomes a, a contested notion and, and a kind of diminishing group. So you say, first of all, well, it's the alleged terrorists, and then who, who is it going to be next? It's, it's that old thing of attacking minority groups, but then the groups who are, who are susceptible to being attacked or being excluded as, uh, from recognition as genuine members of the nation gets more and more malleable and open to contestation. I think it's very worrying. Yes, well, really, you know, I sort of feel that I'm an invader in this country and the only real Australians are the Indigenous Australians. And yet again, they're a minority, so they don't don't have any any power. And I mean, it's, it's only been well fairly fairly recently that they've been given the right to vote, which is, is quite obscene when we look back at our history, isn't it? It is obscene. That's right. And I think the other thing that is should make any of us who doesn't have Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander heritage feel incredibly humble is the way so many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have actually responded to refugees. They've initiated Indigenous passports and and been incredibly welcoming to refugees in a way that the general Australian population hasn't. So I think that's actually quite striking. Yes, they probably did that because they, they feel like refugees in their own country. Yes, yeah, well I think that thing of being able to empathise with another person's experience or to recognise what it, what it is to feel vulnerable or like an outsider or, 
or a person who's stigmatised just because you're a member of a certain group. You know, if you know how that feels, I think it doesn't always ensure that you're more empathetic, but it certainly can assist with that. What is Arendt referring to when she states, according to the 18th century's pronouncement of the rights of man, refugees should have been able to fall back on their fundamental human rights? Okay, so this is when she's um, discussing the situation of refugees in Europe before the Second World War. So following the First World War, there was a redrawing of borders throughout Europe and there were also a series of revolutions and civil unrest that actually produced millions of refugees and many of these refugees from Eastern and Southern Europe made their way into the democracies of Western Europe. And as we were talking about earlier, in the 18th century, the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen had pronounced that all men are born free and equal in rights. So the Declaration explicitly states, this is in Article 1, that men are born and remain free and equal in rights. And Article 2 of the Declaration says that the aim of all political association is the preservation of the natural and imprescriptible rights of man. The preamble to the Declaration refers to the natural, unalienable and sacred rights of man and it suggests that ignorance, neglect or contempt of the rights of man are the sole cause of public calamities and of the corruption of governments. So given this account of rights as natural and as attached to man from birth and inhering in the very essence of man so that they can't be given away or surrendered, Arendt points out that the refugees who entered countries such as France should have been recognised as the subjects of human rights. This was written into these these um, countries' constitutional commitments. The refugees couldn't rely on the protection of their own national governments, of course, and they had no particular claim on the governments of the countries that they were entering. But nevertheless, they should have been able to assert and rely on their human rights. But instead of recognising the refugees' human rights, countries such as France treated the refugees basically as vagrants and as having no status in law. So they were locked up in internment camps and even smuggled into other countries just in order to get rid of, rid of them, basically. Oh, what does Arendt refer to when she's speaking about the myth of human rights? Okay, so Arendt doesn't specifically refer to the myth of human rights. That's an expression that I use in my book on refugees and human rights to capture her her insight that humans are not naturally endowed with rights or by nature free and equal. So as individuals, we all have different strengths and capacities and we also inherit certain advantages or disadvantages such as wealth and power. And this means that equality and rights recognition requires political commitment, as as we've been saying. It means that we're only free and equal if we live in a community that's prepared to uphold the freedom and equality of its members and to treat those who come into contact with it as free and equal. So in my book, I argue that the myth of human rights plays a dangerous role in liberal democratic states because it actually obscures the political effort and commitment that's necessary to realising individual freedom, equality, dignity and rights. Could you describe what a condition of absolute 
rightlessness is? So for a rent, a condition of absolute rightlessness is one in which a person is stripped of her capacity to have an impact on the social and political world around her. It's when a person who speaks out in an attempt to contribute to public debate is automatically silenced. So I guess it's being presumptively regarded as a being or a person whose opinion carries absolutely no weight. And the refugees that Arendt discusses in pre-World War II Europe were reduced to this position. And I would argue that contemporary asylum seekers are also often forced into a similar position. So would, would you agree with a statement that Jewish people were already stripped of all their rights by their treatment by the Nazis before their right to live was taken away from them? Yes, yeah, look, I would. Um, that's actually a chilling statement that Arendt makes in The Origins of Totalitarianism. So she says, and these are her words now, the Nazis started their extermination of Jews by first depriving them of all legal status and cutting them off from the world of the living by herding them into ghettos and concentration camps. And before they set the gas chambers into motion, they carefully tested the ground and found out to their satisfaction that no country would claim these people. The point is that a condition of complete rightlessness was created before the right to live was challenged. That's the end of the quote. And I know it seems contradictory to suggest that a condition of rightlessness was created when people still had a right to life. But Arendt is pointing to the illusory nature of human rights when they're held by people, such as people in detention camps, who have no political power. Rights are illusory if they can't be asserted against a government or within a community that's prepared to recognise the people claiming the rights as subjects of justice. So as human beings who are entitled to have a say in how they're governed and in what happens to them. And I think that's just really, um, I think I said this earlier in the interview, but really kind of starkly demonstrated in the way we're treating asylum seekers or trying to ignore asylum seekers at, at the moment. Yeah, it is. Well, even the average citizen in this country is having their rights stripped away from them because uh, they're losing the right to protest. And I think that is one of the most basic fundamental rights as well. I think so too. And I think that idea of being able to have a politi political voice and express yourself politically is just so fundamental to what it is to live in a, a community where we recognise each other's as, as people who are, you know, not only rights holders but contributed, uh, entitled to contribute to the character of the community. And as soon as you deny people a right to express themselves and a right to protest, you're effectively saying, well, you're not entitled to contribute to the, the character of our community. You know, we'll govern you in the way we want to, but you don't have any say in your government. And that's at complete odds with what it, the idea of democracy is, the idea of representative government. So I think our government's telling us it's not interested in hearing our views in the way we want to be governed. It's basically saying, we'll, we'll make decisions for you and you have to live with them. I suppose when you, when you say that we live in a democracy, I don't think I'd actually use that term because what we live in is a parliamentary rule. We don't live in a direct democracy. 
So I'd, sure. I'd use the term fairly loosely and yeah, I'd like to put in a quote from Emma Goldman and she said, well, if voting changed anything, they'd make it illegal. <laughs> Look, I, I, I do. I'm very sympathetic to that view, but I also think it's really important that we don't, as a result, think, oh, well, there's nothing that can be done. Our voices can't be heard. I mean, I think that it, it imposes an even stronger obligation on us as citizens to speak out, um, to express our civil dissent, you know, I think to vote as well, but also to pursue all the other avenues that are available to us to make ourselves heard. Certainly, and uh, the right right to protest is certainly a, a very fundamental, basic human right. Absolutely. So, so yeah. thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Oh, thanks for having me, Beth. It's been, been very interesting talking to you. <laughs> And I've been speaking to Dr. Emma Larking from the ANU. Hi, I'm Jackie Broad. I'm an ARC Future Fellow at Monash University, Melbourne, and I'm listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR. There's enough food to feed the world Why wouldn't there so many of us Are there people still the known Why are the lizards called peacekeepers When they're aimed to kill Why is a woman still not safe When she's in her home Love is hate War is peace No is yes We're all free But somebody's gonna have to answer Time is coming soon Amidst all these questions and contradictions There's some who seek the truth But tell me, why do the baby star? There's enough food to feed the world Why wouldn't there so many of us Are there people still alone? Why are the methods called peacekeepers When they're aimed to kill? Why is a woman still not safe When she's in her home? Love is hate War is peace Oh, his yes, you're all free. But somebody's gonna have to answer. The time is coming soon when the blind remove their blinders and the streets to speak the truth. Tell me, why do the baby star? There's enough food to feed the world. Why wouldn't there so many of us that there are people still alone? And why are the missiles called peacekeepers when they're aimed to kill? Why is a woman still not safe when she's in her home? Love is hate, war is peace, no is yes, we're all free. Jody, I'm so excited. I just can't hide it. Oh, just in the words of the Pointer Sisters, hey? What? What's happening? The new 3CR t-shirts are coming out. We had a competition. Kate Reid won it and it's so beautiful. It's got roses and a love heart and then the caption is, resistance is fertile. Oh, too deadly that, eh? So in order to get one, go to the 3CR website 
and follow the link to shop. And right. they're $30. $30? Oh, what a bargain. And 25 for kids. You'll be able to secure one for yourself because they're in hot demand. Yay, get one now. that's all we have time for today hope you've enjoyed the show and been given plenty of food for thought and i'd like to thank dr emma larking for her interview on the right to have rights 